CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is sponsored by Zengo. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder... Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. Pretty crazy story unfolded starting on Friday and over the weekend. PayPal published an update to its AUP acceptable use policy that uh, indicated that any PayPal user who was deemed to have been spreading misinformation would be fined $2,500 by the payments platform. Um, very quickly, PayPal issued a statement that uh, claimed this was an error, that this policy was never intended to be implemented. Um, we, can, we can discuss that. Uh, but we also have uh, a lot of evidence that over the years, PayPal has, whether or not it's an explicit policy, uh, done something like this to various outlets and, and individual users. And it's just another uh, another bit of financial censorship, as Zach said. And then we have a tweet here from David Marcus, uh, formerly a high up in PayPal, uh, saying that it is betraying its mission. So, yeah, we have these centralized services that are willing to take your money if it's politically convenient for them. Lots to discuss here. Jen, you seem disgusted. <laughs> Yeah, that's one way to put it. I think this story highlights a lot of things for me. One is that so many people don't read the fine print. I think we, I personally get emails from PayPal every week talking about updates to their terms of service. And I'll be honest, I don't read them all the time. And this was very jarring to read. The apology for the confusing language just feels like such a cop out. It read like I'm sorry you realized what the term said. And so now we didn't really mean it because it was unlikely that we would have enacted it. But the fact is, we wanted to be able to enact it if we had to. But anyways, you've noticed. And so now we are sorry. And it's just this whole thing has highlighted for me the conversation that we have so often on this show around CBDCs and financial censorship. I think people should be reading this story and thinking about you know, being censored for their thoughts and what they're saying, not only by private companies, but by governments and governments who have sway over private companies. And so, yes, David, you were right to read the disgust on my face, but Will, you look just as <laughs> disgusted. So I'm going to pass it off to you. That's just my resting face. No, they say that on Fridays, <laughs> you know, you should put the bad info out there. 
because no one's going to be able to see it, but it doesn't really matter in the age of Twitter, right? When Elon Musk is tweeting at you for your poor policy decisions, and there's nowhere to hide, you're going to be found in PayPal, of course, reverse policy on this. I do want to take a larger step back, though, and look at the financial picture. It's not that PayPal decided to do this. It's where everything is going, right? It's not just PayPal. PayPal is just very uh, out there. People use a lot. People use Venmo. But guess what? This is coming to everybody. There's a lot of laws that have been enacted in the past five years on financial censorship. There's laws going back to the Patriot Act in the early 2000s about financial censorship. There's stuff going back to the 70s with banking acts about financial censorship. It's only becoming more progressive. And that progression tends to step on limited private users who do not want to have their names out there. But that is the way things are going. That's why PayPal is moving that direction. It was interesting to see that they pulled back after the uh, after Marcus went after him, after Elon went after him, after a few other Twitter users were like, "Hey, PayPal, we're not we're not here for this. We're going to shut down our accounts." But I think this is where a lot of other uh, money custodian users are going to be going. Right. So this is why we care so much about privacy. Why we care so much about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies enables a future where we might have some protections against overreaching uh, officials and regulators. David, I'll throw it back up to you. Yeah, definitely a welcome point regarding the broader trend. However, I wanted to point out that uh, PayPal is individually facing consequences for having publicized this. Their stock is crashing this morning after the exchange over the weekend, down over 5% the last time I checked. And that's, that's worse than several uh, fintech ETFs and indexes around the world. So they're underperforming the rest of their category because they got caught uh, kind of publicizing this. I also really quickly just want to emphasize that, you know, this policy is actually something that PayPal already seems to be acting on. We reported several months ago about uh, two news outlets called Mint Press and Consortium, which are legitimate news outlets that feature really quite celebrated American journalists. And they had thousands of dollars frozen by PayPal uh, for reasons that have still been unexplained. So even though PayPal, quote unquote, reversed this statement, they actually do already behave this way. So it's not something that you can just rest easy about. Zach, you want to chime in with some last words here? Yes, this is the big, <laughs> bad boogeyman that crypto people have been preparing to go to war with all these years, right? Censorship resistant platforms, neutral platforms for the unimpeded flow of information and money. And that's the dream. Experiments like this, this quick little blip that popped up and was seemingly corrected. That's what it's all about. I mean, I think uh, people who maintain that they want free speech, they want, they want value neutral platforms for the transfer of money. And when you're working with the big PayPals of the world or you're working with other entities that have opinions on what is, what is good and what is bad, sometimes that can backfire. And I think what we're seeing here is some of the big picture around these neutral platforms and the prospects, the value of these platforms, right? So I think these conversations are super important to get out there. A little bit of histrionics on Twitter, of course, uh, when we see such stuff like this. But in general, those sort of those core issues, I think they're certainly worth discussing. And we saw a little bit of discussion around them this weekend that we don't often see. So that's, that's my take. Tuesday's top story. Okay, we're back to it. Let's talk about Google Cloud. <laughs> Google Cloud is making its way a bit further into the Web3 landscape. Not the first time Google Cloud has done a notable thing over in crypto land, but this one certainly stands out. 
They're working with Coinbase to accept crypto payments from certain companies on cloud services. Really interesting development and again, represents a further step by Google Cloud into the Web3 space. You've seen them at various crypto events. You've heard them talking about their learning approach. You've seen them for a long time on the Hedera Hashgraph, Hedera Hashgraph Governing Council, among other things. This one suggests some continued interest and involvement crypto for payments, which is a bit new. So notable, notable thing, notable development. And I'm going to toss it straight to David for his thoughts on this one. David, what are you thinking? The payments thing is interesting because it's not interesting, if that's the right way to put it. The idea that of, of crypto payments integrations with mainstream anything has kind of lost a, a great deal of currency, so to speak, over the last you know three to four years. In 2016, 2015, that was definitely a big, I guess, bullish signal. You would look at things like, uh, what's Patrick Burns' company? Overstock was taking Bitcoin. That was big news in you know 2014 or something like that. But we don't see a whole lot of things like that. And it's frankly because they're not that interesting at the end of the day. But this, I think, is a bit of an exception, particularly because it sort of begins to hint at one of the actual fundamental advantage of crypto, because you can get automations going. You can get integrations that can do things that, you know, an individual bank account can't necessarily. But Zach, that also leads me back to a question, because you said this is enabling crypto payments for some companies. Does that mean it's not for everybody? Is it not open access? Yeah, I don't know yet. I mean, they said that's what they said in their announcement. They're going to start letting some customers pay for cloud services with cryptocurrencies early in 2023. That's the news that was announced. What that means in practice in terms of who will be allowed to and who will not be, still a bit TBD as far as I understand it. But I saw Jen had her hand up, so I'm tossing it to her. Yeah, I read this story and I was like, oh, it's kind of boring, but also exciting at the same time. So David, I share your sentiment. I think when we think about this story, I think we have to think about the ecosystem, right? So companies like Netflix and Airbnb are customers of Google Cloud. And so when we think about the ecosystem here, you know, we can think about Netflix or Airbnb accepting crypto and it's no longer this novel thing where they, they hold it or we don't know what they do with it. They convert it into fiat. There's now ecosystems being built out so that that crypto can actually act like a traditional currency. And so I think that's why I was excited after I was bored this morning when I read this story. Will, <laughs> what do you got? Yeah, I'll take it really quick and then bounce it back up to Zach for final thoughts on the story. We have a lot of these Google stories, but 95% of them are fake. And it's great to see a real one. Google stepping into the landscape, into the Web3 landscape and adding a little bit of its muscle behind Coinbase. Coinbase is obviously like very strong, so they may, might not even need the additional strength. But Google stepping in and taking things pretty seriously and even lending some of their top talent and their top applications on behalf of Coinbase, that's a big deal. And I think that's why a lot of people in the past have tried to make those fake press releases, including Google in their project. Because it's a large LC, something like Google, Web2 giant step into the space. And that is a bear market thing, right? A lot of times during a bull market, we see these nice headlines. They don't really matter typically. So when the bear market happens, we have these headlines. That's when we're seeing some applications being built for the future. Zach, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, I was just going to note a little sidebar, you know, noticed by some folks over on, on Twitter and covered over, to the, over at the block. If you pop in an Ethereum address into Google, now you get those little pre-populated little boxes that show you the balance of individual addresses. So in addition to some of these, you know, more business focused initiatives, you have Google seemingly 
experimenting in good faith in terms of adapting some of these services into their the bread and butter, their search product, right? So that's kind of cool to be able to see it like, you know, it's pulling from Etherscan, right? They're not creating their own block explorer, but they're pulling from Etherscan and showcasing balances is actually a really interesting, if incremental, step forward in terms of making Google a bit web a bit more Web3 friendly. Mm. So anyway, interesting stuff out of Google for sure. One to watch as it relates to the Web2 giants dabbling in Web3. Zengo Crypto Wallet is an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now has only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your digital currency, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using the wallet's biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash hash and use code hash to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wednesday's top story. This brought me back to DeFi summer 2020. Another hack, another day, late night, right? $100 million was drained from Mango Markets, which is one of the largest marketplaces or exchanges on top of Solana. This exchange is well known by a lot of traders who you know flip tokens during the Solana pump last year. But now they're having some problems after a very illiquid token, their actual native token, Mango token, was used to rug pull $100 million out of the protocol in essentially a very fair way of just using the protocol's own rules against itself. Essentially, they used two tokens. They used USDC, stablecoin, and then the Mango token itself. They pumped up the price of Mango token, which was trading about $0.02 cents to $0.90. Cents. Then they used that token allocation, that $0.90 cents of the Mango token, to go and take a loan out from the Mango DEX itself. And then when the price of that token went back down to $0.02, cents, they ended up with a huge bag from this loan. And the loan got liquidated, and they ended up with about $100 million. So pretty sophisticated hack. These things can happen because DEXs are built within parameters. Typical order book on a centralized exchange, you want to be able to do this because there's people watching over it. Things move a lot more quickly, a little bit harder to do it. But with the DEX, you can do these things because everything is supposed to be pre-programmed into how the computation works on the front end. And if you really know how to use these things correctly, you can get around them and end up with a nice windfall. As of right now, we have some more information. It seems that there's some sort of like bug bounty thing going on, but maybe it's not a bug bounty. There's a DAO involved. The after effects of this, as they always are, are getting a little bit weird. Zach, I'll kick it over to you for your take. All is fair in love, war, and DeFi. That's what this is all about. <laughs> this is some crazy stuff. These are big dollar numbers, but like, check me if I'm wrong here, but this was all within the parameters of the smart contract, right? This was something that someone identified as an exploit, and they said, "Hey, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to hand- and I'm going to profit handsomely." Now, the best part about this, being it being crypto, it being wild as ever, is that the quote unquote hacker started posting in the governance forums of this project, right, and used a significant chunk of the quote unquote stolen tokens to sway a governance vote in his favor. And we saw the co-founder of the protocol chiming in and saying, "Hey, we don't want to get you in trouble with the law. We want to make our users as whole as possible. We want you to handsomely profit." And we want to make sure we can get this behind us in the rear view. So you see these things play out in real time, sort of on chain and in these uh, social forums. And it just becomes really crazy to watch. because we're talking about $100 million here. This is not nothing, right? This is significant money. 
But it's sort of like within the rules of the road in a weird way, right? If code is law, then this guy did not go and break the law, right? He was like, okay, the code here is allowing me to, uh, to execute this exploit. I'm going to profit from that. And then you know what? I'm going to sort of make a little dunk on DeFi governance by using some of those gains to, to do some DeFi governance. I think that part was the part that really stood out to me as like, oh, wow, this is some really next level stuff. But I don't know. Curious for Jen's thoughts on this one because it's a bit of a wild one. Zach, my thoughts were exactly the same as yours. I was laughing to myself as I read that this hacker, we don't know if he's a white hat hacker, or gray hat hacker, or black hat hacker, went and created a proposal that said, I will give the money back if you don't report me to the authorities, and then voted a resounding yes. I think you're exactly right that this highlights an issue that we've been talking about in the DAO space for a really, really long time. We talk about this decentralized governance. Everyone has a word. There's a level playing field. And this hack really highlights that it's not always a level playing field. If you have a lot of money, a lot of tokens, you can be the one who has a say at the end of the day. And I think it's really funny that this hacker was able to highlight that. But we'll pass back to you. Yeah, this story literally has everything right. You got a little Solana plugin. You got a little DeFi hack. Brings you back to the good old days of DeFi summer. You got everything operating within the boundaries of the protocol itself, which I think is actually a little bit more interesting, right? A lot of times we see rug pulls or we see hacks and it's really delving into the code and breaking something. But this was just operating with the rules of the road, as Zach put it. And then the last bit with the DAO governance structure here, that is unintended consequences of the governance. On-chain governance has problems. A lot of L1s have figured that out over the years. Shout out to Polkadot back in 2017. Like These things are well known, but we just keep relearning them. Uh, as we go up the chain and up the stack into DeFi circles. We'll see what happens with this one. I mean, I think they'll they'll get a little bit of money. They'll basically be a white hack at the end of the day. For mango markets, the question is, can they recover from this, right? We've seen in Ethereum markets that there has been some teams that have recovered from these things and some teams that have not. Harvest Finance is one that comes to mind. They're one of the largest hacks for DeFi summer back in 2020. And they got hacked successfully over and over and over again. Till now, it's just a meme and nobody's really using the project. On the other hand, some projects come back from these hacks and they can come back from uh, whatever happens when they lose money because they just they figure out a way, they have some resolve and they get through it and everyone forgets about it. Hopefully, that's what happens. Mango Market seems to be a very good team. It seems to be an unfortunate happening. Thursday's top story. Right. Mods asleep, file lawsuit. That's the story with UkiDAO <laughs> right now. Let's go over to DeFi land, which hasn't been doing so great. According to new information from Chain Analysis, October was the worst month for hacks so far in 2022, with over 718 million stolen from various DeFi protocols. We have the ones we know about Solana, the Mango Market one the other day. We had the BNB hack earlier. And then this year, it's been awful as well. There's the Nomad. The I think there was one called like Rookie Dow or something like that that was hacked. Like there's a bunch of these things that are just going on, just popping off. And I have a prediction for everyone on the show. I think we're going to see more of this going to a bear market because token prices are like they're not terrible. Honestly, I thought they'd be worse. And so then you have a little volume with these hacks, and then people are getting bored. So all these people who are hacking these protocols previously during the bull market, they were focused on making money, not by hacking, but just by understanding how these protocols work. They were trading, they were building. Now all these people who are a little bored and have good technical skill sets, they're going to go hack every protocol they can and make a bunch of money. Adam, I'm going to throw it over to you, get your take on this story. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, like you're right from a broad trend perspective, this will continue. I'm going to be uh, a little bit semantic for a second here and uh, talk about, again, the concept of hacking a DAO. Not really a thing for the most part. Again, like these tend to be weaknesses when it comes to the actual smart contracts that are written. This is something that we've seen going back to the very, very beginning of the world of DAOs with the DAO itself, which again, notoriously was attacked, compromised so badly that the leadership within the Ethereum class effectively created an entirely new chain to try and undo the losses that they had incurred at that early time. And again, this is kind of a continuation of trend. Smart contracts have a lot of promise to them. There's a lot of things that they will eventually do that are really amazing. And there's even some stuff that they're doing that's really positive today, but they remain largely untested uh, technological vehicles for large amounts of money. And we continue to see those, those weaknesses effectively being exploited. So again, not a hack, a compromise. And the compromise is that we don't know how to do these things right yet. And this is kind of how we figure it out, but it's painful if you've got money in them in the short term. Zach? Pinata mode. I've been thinking about pinata. Adam, you're like, yeah, these are big pinatas. We were talking about bridges at the time, but I guess maybe all of DeFi, all of DeFi TVL is one big pinata. And yeah, hey, this may be basically. bad news for crypto investors. Great news for North Korea. A lot of good memes out there about North Korea <laughs> celebrating major crypto heists. So watch out over there. Friday's top story. We do have an interview coming up. So Unstoppable Domains has partnered with Crypto Connection and her DAO LATM to create Unstoppable Women of Web3. Together, they have made the commitment to onboard more than 5 million Latinas into the space by 2030. Joining us now is Sandy Carter, Senior VP and Channel Chief at Unstoppable Domains to tell us more. Hello. Hello. So glad you didn't have me on that road to boring story, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is definitely a road to excitement. Don't worry about that. <laughs> why don't you start off by telling us why we're focusing on LATM? We talk so much about education in the space. We talk so much about closing the gap. Why are we starting with LATM? Yeah. So if you look at Latinos, historically, Latinos are underrepresented in the tech market. Only about 2% of computer-related jobs are in the U.S. held by Hispanic women. So the same is true in Latin America, where Latinos are underrepresented in all kinds of STEM fields. So we wanted to supplement what we're doing today in English with providing education for Latinas across the world. And our mission is to onboard 5 million Latinos by 2030 into Web3. So I know that you were talking about transitioning Web2 female developers over to Web3. Why are we starting there and not looking at education at a, with a younger audience? Oh, we're doing actually both. So we actually have in the Unstoppable Women of Web3, which was started and founded on March 8th of this year, we have a couple of different education streams. We have one for women overall in English, and we just introduced Unstoppable Women of Web3 education for girls. In fact, from age four to 18. Uh, I was just able to witness a six-year-old teaching about a smart contract to her four-year-old sister. So we are starting with younger as well. But we also saw a lot of demand for other languages. In particular, Spanish came up over and over again. Latino women are extremely interested in the space and they just need some more education. So we're starting with education like Web3, use cases that are used today, decentralization, wallets. NFTs and more. So we're launching workshops 
as well as virtual education streams and working with the universities to provide that in most of the Latin America uh, universities. Great to have you on the show today. I'm, I'm curious about the 5 million number and how you guys came to that decision. That's a pretty ambitious goal if you look at crypto right now. Do you see that as more of like a self-fulfilling thing because so many people are going to become involved in crypto over the next decade? Or is it more just because you guys have a lot of resources you're able to push forward with unstoppable domains? Well, I would say it's a bit of, the, of both. We have partnered with Crypto Conexion, uh, Herdal, Latam, as well as Bit2Me. Bit2Me is based in Spain, the other two based in Latin America. So the demand has been really high. And so we decided we really needed an execution plan to make this happen. Uh, we looked at the number of women that are Latina today and the number of women that were very interested. We wanted to give ourselves a bold goal, not something we could knock out of the park, but something that was doable. And we felt that 5 million was the right number as we did the analysis of the market. There are so many powerful, uh, insightful women out there that are Latina, and we know that this can empower them to even do more in Web3 and the metaverse. Also imagine, you know, if you think about one of the things I love about Web3 is it's not just for technologists. Think about uh, community managers, because community is really important in the space. Creators of all kinds, artists, musicians, um, as well as the typical developers or folks who are working on chain or, you know, looking at digital identity like Unstoppable does. There's so much opportunity in the space. And the bear market is the time to build. So this is the time to get people educated and get them building. This is when the innovation happens, right, guys? Is in a bear market. Yeah, I All actually right, want to so, follow up on that last point. Oh, Zach, you, you got it. You got it, Zach. Get you follow you. up, my man. You got this. <laughs> follow up question I can really quick. Then I'll bump it up to Zach for last take. Just got a lot of questions today. Bear market stuff. How do you guys see from an unstoppable domains perspective, these sort of initiatives rolling out? Retail is always so finicky, right? Like everyone wants to be part of it, it's really frothy. And then all of a sudden, everyone wants to leave and go out the door as fast as possible. When you're building these education campaigns, how do you build it so it's sustainable? So we're actually doing a lot of experimentation and work to ensure that we're developing the education in the right way and the right path. So we've done, you know, great mix in terms of video and audio and uh, white papers. We're also doing some great rewards like badges that will sit inside of that unstoppable digital identity. So the education itself is sticky. I don't see Web3 and the metaverse going away. I think it's only going to grow in importance. Every conference I go to, like I was just in the metaverse summit in uh, Paris, millions and millions of people are... Uh, you know, exercising in um, the metaverse and doing business in the metaverse and learning about the metaverse. I think the next generation is where this is really going to come to fruition. And so building education now is, is making sure that we have all of the requirements set in order to be successful as we move forward. So it's just like the typical thing that we did. I used to work at Amazon Web Services. Um, you know, we spent five years educating the market on what the cloud was, and then boom, the cloud burst into uh, into existence. The same thing will be true here in Web three and the metaverse. I believe doing the right job of educating, getting the you know that foundation built, will cause great things to happen as we continue to build through the bear market. All right. So my question is: This is a pretty audacious goal, and it seems wildly divergent from what I think of unstoppable domains as. Right? Well, unstoppable to me is I go, I can buy Zach.crypto, Zach.nft, or whatever. Right? So, and I think maybe I heard a little 
in the last bit of your statement there, but what makes Unstoppable uniquely positioned to do this? Is this new? Like, why should we think that you're going to be able to accomplish this big goal of onboarding a significant chunk of people into the Web3 ecosystem? Mm, That's a great question. So Unstoppable Domains, obviously, is the company that I work for. And and Unstoppable Domains delivers digital identity. So Sandy.NFT that then travels with you through Web3. What we did is we started a group called Unstoppable Women of Web3. It is a separate group. The founding partner is Unstoppable. But we have 130 companies that are now engaged in this group. So this is not Unstoppable doing this by themselves. This is Unstoppable with their partners. Some of those and partners include the who's who of Web3, like OpenSea, like Blockchain, like Opera. So all Binance that you were just talking about earlier. All those companies have signed a pledge committed to provide education and resources to help us in this initiative. But we also have some interesting Web2 companies that are also part of this. Google Cloud, for example, which just made a big announcement with a Coinbase. Deloitte, which is building up their uh, you know, best practices in blockchain. So there is a lot of uh, support around this. And in fact, when I first founded Unstoppable Women of Web3, I was hoping to get maybe 20 companies to come on board. Like I said, now we have over 130. This is important, not just to Unstoppable, but to our industry overall to get more diverse people educated on this because we're so early. We're in the dial-up phase of Web3. You need all voices to be heard, not just a set of verses. All voices are going to be what help us to innovate and build throughout this, this market. All right. Well, we like the composability, the composable approach to impact and education. Noted there. Interesting stuff. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 